It's Monday, and that so happens to be the day that I like to talk about monsters. I'm Jeff Arbuckle, and this is Monster Mondays, presented by Film Seizure. Now, I think you'll soon notice what this month is all about. Classic Universal Monster sequels. Previously, I had covered Bride of Frankenstein, which was the first sequel from any of the classic monster cycle. But it's time to kind of catch up with more of those. Last week, I did Revenge of the Creature, a semi-popular follow-up to Creature from the Black Lagoon. This week, it's a film that almost wasn't, at least wasn't in terms of being a true direct sequel, Dracula's Daughter from 1936. Okay, so things are going to get interesting here with this movie. There was a chapter in Bram Stoker's Dracula novel that was not originally published with the rest of the book. This became a short story published after Stoker's death in a collection of other tales that he had written. And this short story or this chapter was known as Dracula's Guest. The rights to tell that story was leveraged to MGM by way of executive David O. Selznick negotiating a 1933 contract with Stoker's widow. MGM's lawyers at that point suddenly became concerned over the use of Dracula in the title, fearing that, well, Universal may come after them. The title Dracula's Daughter was floated as an alternate title for this MGM film, but most written and otherwise explicit communication tended to refer to the project as Tarantula. One other thing about this contract was that... uh, it didn't allow for the MGM movie to use any of the characters that had appeared in the Dracula novel. So no uh, Van Helsing, no Harker, no uh, any of the other characters, uh, uh, Quincy Morris or any of those guys. So it's more likely it would have just been adapted into a completely different story that maybe took place in the universe of Dracula, but didn't even feature any of the characters, maybe not even the Count himself. Now, ultimately, Selznick would sell the rights in 1935 to Universal for a sum of $12,500. David J. Skull, a film scholar, theorized that this was probably the whole intention of Selznick in the first place, knowing that Universal would want those rights to that Stoker story. They also sold pretty much the entire working spec script that was created for Dracula's Guest that actually involved some pretty heavily implied BDSM elements. But that said, Universal didn't really have it all that easy. They really wanted James Whale to make the film because of his success with Bride of Frankenstein. However, he didn't really want to do it all that much. He was pretty much done with horror at that point. Despite him promising he'd do the film when he completed the project that he was currently working on, he didn't. He ended up making a different movie. So next up came Edward Sutherland. So he, Sutherland himself, was more of a comedic director, much, well, I guess in a lot of ways, much like Whale was. But he probably wanted to do Dracula's Daughter less than Whale did. So finally, Lambert Hillier would get the job and he stuck. They also were able to ultimately make it a direct sequel to Dracula. I don't know if they reworked the contract or if or because they had the rights and they had the rights of the uh, of the original Dracula story, they were able to really turn it into a direct sequel at that point. Gloria Holden would be less cast as Dracula's daughter, Countess Mariah Zaleska, and more assigned the role. You see, she was a universal contract player. 
This would be her first starring role, but like many actors did at the time, she looked down on horror films. She also couldn't really help notice how difficult it was for Bela Lugosi to shake the typecasting that he had to deal with after playing Count Dracula. But she didn't have any choice in the matter, and I have more to say about that when we get to my three likes, because I think it really does kind of come through in her performance, but in a positive way. Our film opens up with two English bobbies entering Dracula's place, and they find Renfield's dead body, and then they were approached by Professor Van Helsing, who had just killed Dracula. So, I mean, this opens up right as the first Dracula film ends. And they arrest Van Helsing on suspicion of murder, and he's at the, you know, he's downtown at uh, the Scotland Yard office there, and He's kind of relating the whole story to the top guy at Scotland Yard in this area, at least, and then asks for no lawyer, but for his student, Dr. Jeffrey Garth, to come to prove that what he did was not indeed murder if, in fact, Dracula's been dead for 500 years. Later, a mysterious woman comes into the jail and demands to see the body of Count Dracula, claiming to be his daughter. Ultimately, she steals it to burn it in some sort of exorcism ritual. Now, she believes herself free now that Dracula is gone. She tells her manservant, Sandor, that she wants to live among the living again and be a real woman for the first time in over a hundred years. But he knows that she really can't. In fact, he almost wants to keep her in that darkness and unable to rejoin the living or have any hopeful thoughts whatsoever. And sure enough, she does end up going out to feed and must return before daylight. So she's not truly free from that curse of Dracula anyway. Elsewhere, Jeffrey's assistant Janet Blake has retrieved him to assist Van Helsing. And Jeffrey isn't so sure about the superstitious hocus pocus stuff. That said, he does agree to help Van Helsing because he believes in his teacher and mentor. That evening, Countess Zaleska arrives at a posh party and is introduced to Janet and Jeffrey, and he's quite taken by this Eastern European beauty. They discuss the, the whole Van Helsing case while Zaleska just listens in about this vampire talk. And Jeffrey believes that Van Helsing can simply be cured through sympathetic treatment, as that can, as he says, free any mind from any ailment. And Zaleska really catches on to this and decides that this is most definitely what she needs to be freed from her vampire situation. Janet is partly weirded out by Zaleska and partly jealous of how much attention Jeffrey gives her. She even goes so far as to prank him while he meets with the Countess to discuss what she wants to be cured of. Later, the Countess requests that her manservant find her a model to paint, sometimes Instead of feeding, she likes to try to express herself in artistic ways. So he finds this girl named Lily, who seems to be despondent and possibly considering jumping off of a bridge and killing herself. He offers her warmth, food, and payment if she models for Zaleska. So I suspect that Lily might be a street urchin or some other state of homelessness. Now, Zaleska has Lily remove her blouse and lower the straps of her undergarment so that she can paint her from the shoulders up. But instead, Zaleska approaches her and drains Lily of her blood. Jeffrey 
later visits the catatonic Lily in the hospital and believes that she's in some sort of like post-hypnotic state. He studies the bite wounds on her neck and realizes that maybe there's something to what old Van Helsing has been saying all along about this vampire stuff. Van Helsing tells Jeffrey about some things to look for. First, try to find out where the attack happened and then nearby see if he can find a box of soil that will be where the vampire must retreat to each night to sleep. Later, as he waits for the girl to awaken to question her, Zaleska comes to Jeffrey and says that she's leaving for the mainland of Europe and, he, and she wants him to go with her. He tells her basically to stay and wait for him to return so that they can kind of talk about this kind of heightened state of uh, stress that she's in and that she had better not leave London before he gets back. After he leaves, Zaleska decides that he will be going with her one way or another. And it just so happens that Janet returns to the office and Zaleska and Sandor take her uh, to their car and basically is going to make off with her to force Jeffrey to come after them. Meanwhile, Lily is able to tell Jeffrey some stuff after he's hypnotized her, but she dies from the trauma of this. And he realizes that Countess Zaleska is probably at fault for all of this. So he tracks down her studio. He then calls him back up from Scotland Yard and Professor Van Helsing. And Jeffrey confronts Zaleska, but she slips away before Van Helsing and Scotland Yard can arrive. And this ultimately leads to Jeffrey chasing Countess Zaleska to Romania to save Janet. And this kind of ends similarly to how the original novel Dracula ends with the final confrontation taking place back where the Dracula story begins at his castle. Countess Zaleska gives Jeffrey the ultimatum. Give her his life and she'll break the spell that Janet is under that can only be broken by her or by way of Janet's death. This does make Sander very jealous because he was promised the eternal life and he's kind of in love with that whole idea of being a monster and such so just as jeffrey agrees and zaleska frees janet from the spell sander shoots zaleska with an arrow killing her and jeffrey and janet are together while van helsing notes that zaleska was beautiful when she died over a hundred years ago So let's get to my three things that I like about Dracula's daughter. First, I do like that much like Bride of Frankenstein was to Frankenstein, this is a direct sequel to Dracula. This is portrayed by having Edward Van Sloan return as Van Helsing. The movie picks up just right after the moment that Van Helsing did his thing to vanquish Count Dracula. So it's got a little bit of continuity here. Plus, he's arrested, as you might expect. Yeah, that's something you rarely see in movies. The aftermath. Regardless if Dracula was a befangled monster that preyed upon women and the like, he was still seen, at least by most, as a human. You kill the guy, not to mention breaking and entering into his abbey, and you might have to pay some sort of penalty, and I like that a lot. He also calmly explains to everyone he'd rather get the help from his star psychiatry student to defend him instead of getting a lawyer. And that's kind of that's kind of badass on Van Helsing's part. The second thing I like about this movie is probably what gets remembered most about the movie, the lesbian vampire undertones. The concept of a lesbian vampire had been present in media as far back as the 1870s, at least in books. 
In fact, I believe I commented that that was the case in one of the earliest episodes of Monster Mondays, The Vampire Lovers. Dracula's daughter marks the first time this concept was implied or evoked imagery of in film. Countess Zaleska likes to paint pretty girls and eventually becomes obsessed in a way with both Lily and then with Janet. It is obvious that there are, you know, that there's an impl- implication at least of nude modeling and sexual attraction, as well as some sexual predatory behavior on the part of Countess Zaleska. And it should come as no surprise that the head of the production code administration at that time fought hard to minimize any portrayal of this in the film and in the script. And it was literally a topic that might find a change on a daily basis while the film was in production. Naturally, it was also part of the general portrayal of homosexuality as a predatory danger, an illness that leads to violence like rape and murder and just generally monstrous things. However, it is obviously played towards sensuality, too. Some critics question how any of this could have possibly gotten past the censors since it was shot and played so erotically in some scenes. Lots and lots of attention is given to the scenes involving the young, pretty model Lily with Zaleska, but some do like to point out the long, lingering hovering that Zaleska does over the sleeping body of Janet while seemingly descending to kiss her, but never quite doing so. The third like that I have is for Gloria Holden's portrayal of Zaleska. It's actually a very, very intelligent portrayal. She hated the idea of being in a horror movie. She despised the idea that she was forced into a role by her contract. So that oozes from her character. It gives her this kind of self-loathing quality that isn't too often portrayed in, in, in many big vampire films. Most of the time, the vampire, like Dracula, is a monster who feeds and turns people and is kind of drunk on his power and his own selfishness. It's not too often that you see vampires, at least not back in the earlier days of horror films, as tragic characters and hating what they are and their curses and desperately trying to be freed from that. And I think it adds a little bit more depth to the film. That wraps up this week's Monster Mondays. Don't forget to check out new episodes of Film Seizure every Wednesday and a new installment of Monster Mondays each Monday on FilmSeizure.com as well as places where fine podcasts are found, like SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Additionally, hop on over to Facebook and Twitter to follow us by just searching for Film Seizure. You can also check out new posts at my website, bmovieanima.com, each and every Friday. So until next week, stay spooky.